Welcome to Down the Yellow Brick Pod, your ticket somewhere over the rainbow and down many a yellow brick rabbit hole for all royal revisionists and fans of Oz to fall down together. Today, you've landed in our Slipperhood series where we interview many of the magical folks who identify with or have stepped into the legacy of the sparkly shoes, no matter if they are silver or ruby red, in a Broadway caliber production or homemade from the heart. May Oz continue to connect us across gender identities, generations, and cultures thanks to things like recognizable gingham, and inspire our next steps today. Kelly Rabke got her big break playing the role of Dorothy in Paper Mill Playhouse's acclaimed production of The Wizard of Oz. Shortly thereafter, she was handpicked by Andrew Lloyd Webber to play the lead role of the narrator in the Broadway revival of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. She's also featured on the U.S. cast recording. Following that, she played her dream role, Eponine, in Les Miserables on Broadway. She went on to perform in regional theaters across the country in such roles as Mabel in Mac and Mabel, Christine in Phantom, and Back to Paper Mill Playhouse in Stephen Schwartz's landmark production of Children of Eden as Yona. She is one of the only Broadway stars to originate a role in both a Stephen Schwartz and an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, a distinction for which she is incredibly honored. She has been seen and heard in loads of TV commercials and voiceovers, and was the voice of several animated characters, including Kat in the Discovery Kids series Kenny the Shark. She also played the recurring role of Bernadette on The Young and the Restless. After leaving the bright lights of the stage to start a family, Kelly is now a staple in the New York City cabaret world. Her first solo cabaret show debuted to a sold-out crowd at Feinstein's 54 Below, and since then, she's been featured in shows ranging from Sondheim to Streisand to Bernstein. She now performs regularly with symphony orchestras stretching from Calgary to Mazatlan and all across the country in blockbuster Broadway, Music of the Nights, and The Wonderful Music of Oz. Other recent highlights include debuting an original song written by David Friedman and Kathy Lee Gifford on The Today Show, and recording the PBS American Songbook Emmy-nominated segment Stephen Schwartz and Friends, featuring the composer himself at the piano, and Kelly singing one of his signature songs from Wicked, The Wizard and I. She is most proud of her biggest productions to date, her son, Joseph, and daughter, Abigail. Visit www.kellyrabkey.com for photos, videos, schedule, and more. Okay, welcome back, listeners. It's good to have you here. This is a very special episode of our Slipperhood series, mostly because... Me, Tara, I'm getting to talk to a Dorothy on my journey when I was five years old. So I'm going to put on my slippers and walk down memory lane. Um, When I was about five years old, I come from New Jersey. 
Some of you may remember we've presenced before Paper Mill Playhouse on this podcast with Shanice Williams. As both of us, we were talking about how Paper Mill was really instrumental in our early childhood and doing their conservatory and how it just cracked open the world of theater for us. So my journey with Paper Mill begins right here when I was five, going to see The Wizard of Oz in 1992, which is so wild. Um, And it was the first time I had done anything like dressed up to go anywhere like in a special way. My Nana, my my own Aunt Em, my Aunt Emma, they worked tirelessly to make me look and feel like Dorothy. My aunt designed a Dorothy dress from scratch. Um, she made me a Dorothy doll. My Nana looked everywhere for ruby slippers. I it wasn't like now you can kind of go on Amazon.com and be like ruby slippers and you could find ruby slippers. At this this time, ruby slippers were not easy to be found. You had to do some um, deep sleuthing and like flea market <laughs> running around. So she somehow found me a pair of ruby slippers and we got in the car and we went to go see Wizard of Oz. This was my first live theater experience, I believe. Either that or Peter Pan. I'm not quite sure. One of the first... Um, theater experiences I had, but the first time I definitely dressed up in something to feel like a part of this world. And Kelly, who is here with us today, Kelly Rapke, was was the Dorothy of this production. And I think this is what I know, Kelly. My parents were friends with your grandmother. Um, And your grandmother lived in Middlesex, correct? Oh, yes. My dad's, yes. My grandma Rapke. Yeah. Grandmother Rafke. Excellent. Okay. Grandmother Rafke was friends with my parents and she um, brought us backstage to meet you and see you afterwards. So we had this whole extraordinary experience that, you know, not everyone gets of getting to go backstage. So I came dressed in my little gingham. We took a million photos and then we saw the show and I, what I remember the most is when the Emerald City was revealed. We'll talk about that later. I just remember being like, where am I? <laughs> like just and the yellow brick road being this swirly, um, this magical swirly, like paper almost that was like falling down from the sky on the set. I remember that vividly. And then we went backstage to go meet you. And all this is what sticks and this is what changed my life, Kelly. And I truly mean this, it changed my life. Um, I remember we were in a tiny stairwell. And there was exposed piping and bricks. And we were in this underground magic of the theater that I was like, where are we? I don't want to leave. I just remember feeling so seen in all the um, the wig caps that were on people and the makeup. Like people were half in costumes, half out, running around. I just was like, this is my circus. This is what I want. Like I just remember feeling that when I was five years old. And then I got to meet you and we took pictures for the newspaper. I don't remember why that was there, but we were in some newspaper together. Um, and you could, I was so shy, Kelly. I barely would look at anyone else who wasn't like a family member, but there's a picture of me looking right at you. And that had to be huge for me. Like just looking back, cause I was such a shy kid. And this was the first probably kind of feeling of, oh, I feel like I'm finding a place where I can look up. You know, not just be this little um, tiny, like I always kind of shrunk myself, I feel like when I was a kid. And I felt like I was starting to lift on up in this experience. So with that being said, this was an incredible experience for me getting to talk to you today. I have little misty tears in my eyes because then I saw you as the narrator and Joseph will get into all of that and got to go backstage again. Do you remember any of this, Kelly? Am I like just, you're like, who is this girl? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, there, there, 
that show holds so many fantastic memories for me. I mean, it was, it was my big break, you know, and I grew up in West Orange, so I grew up very close to Paper Mill. Um, And and my, so my friends, my family, everybody came. It was, it was obviously a life changing experience for me too. And there were a lot of kids who would come, kids and adults who would come dressed for the show. You know what's funny? I do actually remember one girl, did you say that your your grandma made you a, um, or your aunt made you a doll with the yeah. matching dress too? You won too. I think so. I think I have a doll. I mean, they, I, I got, I got Barbie dolls dressed as Dorothy. I got regular dolls dressed as Dorothy. I got a basket mm-hmm. with a photo in it. I got all kinds of things. And then, and then for the narrator, somebody dressed a Barbie in the narrator costume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are uh, very creative and very generous. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And my aunt definitely made me a doll and I'm pretty sure she made you one because mine, I remember there was two and one had dark hair and I got the one with the red hair. Cause I wanted the one with the red hair. Maybe because it looked like you. I don't know. I was like, I want the red hair one. So she took the other one. So that might be what you have. <laughs> box downstairs filled with memorabilia. Now when we're finished now, I'm going to have to go dig that one out and, and check and see. Oh. You, know, you know what'll mark it? The ruby slippers were made out of aluminum foil. So if you find that, <laughs> that will mark it. <laughs> Authentic Tagliaferro family made. Okay. I'm definitely going to go look. If it's not here, it could also be at my parents' house because they're, they're okay. still in West Orange and their attic is filled with things as well. So oh my Okay. So this is amazing already. Can you start us off now? Completely just want to hand the baton over to you. Can you tell us what your yellow brick road in life was before you landed into those slippers? You said it was your big break. Can you lead us up until becoming Dorothy in one of like the biggest regional premieres of the musical version? Yeah. Um, so I, I started singing, um, just, you know, as a kid in school, um, probably sixth grade, um, they, I remember they had something called the top twenties chorus where, you know, they, they had, it was a smaller group of, of kids who were more interested in than just the regular chorus. Right. So, um, in junior high school, I had a wonderful junior high school music teacher who really encouraged me. And, um, I remember he would teach me how to belt. He put his fingers up on, it's hard to do on a podcast here, but, um, Take your two pointer fingers and put them on your cheekbones pointing forward. And then he said, sing through there. Oh, yes. Right. It's, it's kind of a a great visual to like get a very forward pointed sound, which is great for belting. Um, So he was like my first influence when it came to that. And he encouraged me to audition for solos in school and all that kind of stuff. And then I had a great high school music teacher who, gave me a real appreciation and love for classical music, which I didn't grow up necessarily with. Um, And so I decided to go to college as classical voice major. So I started at Ithaca um, as a classical voice major and then spent one year in that program and um, had a a life-changing experience in a rep class one. So you had to do these rep classes every week where you perform for the – for the voice faculty and we had to sing in German and French and Italian and and it was a wonderful education and Ithaca's music program is fantastic. But um, I brought one of my friends from the theater department and we sang Suddenly Seymour together. And my very proper um, voice teacher, Mr. Roland Bentley, 
said to me, I don't ever want to hear you sing like that again. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to switch my major. (laughs) I switched over to musical theater for uh, my sophomore and junior year. And then after my, my junior year, the school show was Bye Bye Birdie. And a woman came up to me afterwards and she was a theater arts management major from Ithaca who was now working in the city um, for a management company. And she said, I think you'd be great for commercials and stuff like that. She gave me her card. So that summer between my junior and senior year, I auditioned for her and I ended up booking a couple commercials and a little TV show. And so I decided not to go back to Ithaca for my senior year. And I transferred to Fordham, um, Fordham University at Lincoln Center. Because I'd already put three years into my education. And uh, first of all, I knew my parents would kill me if I didn't finish. <laughs> but also, um, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to give that up, too. So I, I was already on the path. And I didn't, you know, I wanted to keep the momentum rolling, but I wanted to finish my education, too. So I lost all of my music credits, really, when I transferred to Fordham, because they didn't really have a music program as much as they had a theater program. So <clears throat> I started as a bachelor of music, a BFA in music. And I ended up with a BA in theater basically when I graduated from Fordham. So I ended up having to do like one extra semester to make up for the transfer. But for the most part, I finished in like four and a half years. And at that point I moved to the city and I was going on auditions and finishing up school. And, um, and the, there was a woman who was my voice teacher at Fordham who was without question, the most important teacher of my lifetime. Her name was Luca Tereski. And she, you know, with any teacher and with any, whatever the subject is, some teachers just speak to you. You just get it. And she, she did more in one semester at Fordham for me than three years at Ithaca. And it, it just, it just clicked. Um, and she was a wonderful teacher and we did everything from glitter and be gay to, um, on my own from Les Mis and everything in between. And she, a former student of hers, Jamie Rocco was co-directing a production of Wizard of Oz at Paper Mill Playhouse. And she said, you need to see my student Kelly. And that's how I got the audition for it. And that's that's how it all came about. They had been doing an exhaustive search trying to find their Dorothy and uh, it just clicked and it, and it was me. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Before, beautiful. before we get into this production of the Wizard of Oz, which M, I wish you saw, like no. it inspired our logo for this podcast. Cause that's like how cool that set was. We'll get into that. Yeah. But I want to pause on what you said about your suddenly Seymour epiphany that you had bath at mm-hmm. Ithaca. Cause that feels like that changed the course of how you would go follow this dream of singing. What you had a teacher saying, no, that's not it. And then you trusted something else. What was that trust? Could you tell us a little bit more about what allowed you to defy them and pave your own path and follow your gut it's how something feels to you you know it, it's definitely that i heard a, there's a great quote um when you stop listening to the sound wait i'm gonna mess this up when you stop listening to the sound of your voice and listen to what's in your heart that's when you're really singing it's something to that effect i'm massacring this beautiful quote but it's it's 
some music, when you sing it, it just touches you and reaches you and connects with you. And I knew that's what I needed to be singing. And I love opera and I was doing a lot of like operetta and whatever, but, um, I, it just wasn't me. That was never going to, it didn't resonate with me the same way that theater music did. And it didn't suit my personality the same way that theater music did. And so it really was just a matter of finding what, what clicks. And you I think you do have to listen to your intuition and your heart and this feels good. I like singing suddenly Seymour. I don't like singing poor wandering one anymore. Like, man. <laughs> that intuition is so beautiful. And I feel like in the field of being creative, like I'm, I'm so struck by what you shared about your voice teacher uh, feeling like I learned she made a greater impact on me than maybe all these other years. I feel that way about my college voice teacher. I'm like, all this tuition was for her. It was totally <laughs> worth it because of my voice teacher. And that feeling of just clicking with someone. It's also so beautiful that that connection with your voice teacher and that trust you had with each other led you to this huge moment in your career to Paper Mill Playhouse. That is so beautiful. She's like your Glinda. She yeah. is. Yeah, she really <laughs> is. We love a Glinda. We love a pink bubble. We love her. That's amazing. Okay. Now this production, could you talk about the buzz around it at the time? Because it was one of the first American regional productions because the stage show was not quite yet a thing. This is when it started becoming a thing. Can you tell us more about what you knew at the time and what was exciting about it? Um, well, from from what I recall, the Royal Shakespeare Company had had just sort of, they had done it in England and they had reworked the script, you know, to work for a stage production. So yes, Paper Mills was like the first big major one here. And it was, it is such a tragedy that we don't have a video of it. And we don't, I mean, they, we voted, the equity members voted on an archival uh, taping of the show and one person voted no. And so we weren't able to save it. And it's, I mean, truly, you were truly transported over the rainbow. It was, and from what I remember and what I remember hearing, they spent $2 million on a seven-week production. I mean, Paper Mill had a budget like no one else. They had, you know, the biggest market base. And and we had everything. We had pyrotechnics. We had children. We had dogs. We had flying. The house flew. The witch flew on a bicycle. I flew. It, it, it was when the tornado came, we went from black and white. So everything, all the costumes, all the set pieces, everything was gray, black and black and white. Everything was in to, uh, like shades of gray in the beginning. And then after the house, after the, the cyclone came and the house fell, the stage went completely black and silent. And then the house lights came up and everything was in technicolor. I went from having a gray and white gingham dress and gray boots running off stage, doing a quick change into the blue and white gingham dress. The, the, um, I still had my gray boots at that point, but they even put like red lipstick on me and, you know, everything became technicolor and the, the munchkins were, there were holes cut in the stage floor. There was like a fake stage built above the real stage so that there was a space in between the two and the munchkins could pop up out of the floor. 
and there was something called a passerelle built around the orchestra pit. So that the, the yellow brick road continued out, um, basically encircled the orchestra pit, you know, like in a, in a half moon kind of way. So we could dance and walk around the orchestra pit and back onto the stage. It was like closer to the audience. Um, and I mean, it, yeah, I, I, I could go on and on about how spectacular the production itself was. Um, I'm not sure that I knew necessarily about the buzz ahead of time. You know, when you're in the middle of something, it's not like you, I did know that it was a big deal before the show opened. Um, there was a big balloon event in South Jersey every year. Um, I, I don't, re- I don't recall. I've, I've been. <laughs> so I want to go before we even opened, we did a press event in this balloon thing. And so I was, I, I had the braids, the, the dress, the full costume and Eddie Bracken, who was the wizard came to, and, um, I believe Toto was there as well. And we did, they put us in a little plane and we circled around and we landed. So we made like an entrance on the field, um, to, you know, to the crowds. And then they put us in a balloon and we took a balloon flight. We did pictures. In fact, that, that photo you just showed me from the backside of the Wizard of Oz program. Exactly. That is from, that's from that event. Oh my God. And, real balloon. and <laughs> this is the funniest part of that event. So, you know, with balloons, clearly they follow the wind. You don't exactly know where they're going to land. You, you hope you know where it's going to land, but the wind takes you where the wind's going to go. So we ended up landing in a cul-de-sac on someone's front lawn. And <laughs> they came out of their house to find a girl dressed like Dorothy and a guy dressed like the wizard getting out of a balloon. They must have thought, okay, crazy town's here. But jealous of them. I wish I had opened my door to see that. I'd be like, my life is made. It happened. I've been waiting for this. So yes, there was definitely a, a, a buzz and a, um, a paper mill had their publicity machine working full time. Let's put it that way. Got it, got it, got it. <laughs> I didn't send the show one week because the ticket sales were so great. It was, they usually do a six week production. I think we did a seven, but we had to, they, it could have continued much longer, but they're, you know, they have, they're a subscription theater. They've got a, they've got a whole season planned. And we ran from, I remember correctly, it was the fall. So it was like September, October, something like that till December. And then the Nutcracker was going to be starting. So. um. Oh, you extend it. Okay. Wow. Kelly, how, how were you feeling leading up to it? Because I know carrying a show, leading a show, even if it's like a dream show, dream role, and it sounds like you were, you know, in your home state, you're so supported, but how, how were you feeling uh, before you stepped into this iconic role? You know, when things happen really quickly for you, you kind of don't have time to think about it. it. You, you just do, you just keep going. And that was very much what was happening. You know, I was cast, we started rehearsals, we had fittings, we had press. And then in the same way, I went from it was during Wizard of Oz that I got the audition for Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So it was probably our fifth or sixth week, like we were winding up with the show and I had this 
truly life altering experience where, um, I don't know if you want me to tell this story or if you want me to stick with the Wizard of Oz stuff, but like Andrew Lloyd Webber walked in, in the middle of my audition and that's, that's how I ended up getting cast as the narrator. Um, I call it it my showbiz Cinderella story, but so I, I Wizard of Oz ended and then I had a few weeks and then I flew to Los Angeles and then I was there for two months and we opened Joseph out there and then we went to San Francisco for six weeks and then we came home and then we opened on Broadway and then that show closed in like June. I had a couple months in the summer. Then I went into Les Mis as Eponine and that closed. So when I say you don't have time to think you, or you don't have time to, um, obsess about something let's put it that way or you almost don't really have perspective on it until you can take a step back until some years have gone by and you look back at all of this and you go wow that was really a whirlwind um and so i i I experienced a lot of um big success very early on in my career and then i kind of paid my dues after that you know then after all of that whirlwind was over um, I did a lot of regional theater. I did a lot of readings for new musicals. I, um, it was, you know, being a performer is very much a roller coaster ride. It has its highs and it has its lows. And I went from starring in a Broadway show to you know, babysitting for my neighbor's kids a, a year later. So it's, it, mm-hmm. it's not a steady climb. When you're in the middle of it all, you don't, I feel like you don't appreciate it's not the right word because you very much appreciated the opportunities that were in front of me, but you, you don't necessarily even realize the magnitude of it all until some time has gone by and you can look back on it. Um, it's funny. I just said to my son the other day that we're talking about perspective and what an you know important thing that is in life. And I said, how much I would love to go back and do a Broadway show now that it just would be such a different experience with so much more life under my belt, you know, being married, being divorced, having two children. It's a very, um, I'm a very different Kelly today than I was when all of that whirlwind was happening. Sure. Mm -hmm. I love that your whirlwind too, like has like this theme of like Oz, this bursting in technicolor. Then you, go to a Technicolor dream coat. (laughs) Back to the gray. Let's be miserable with Eponine. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a nice color palette happening. I, that is so wild to see like the snowball effect of all these opportunities just like Mm -hmm. happening at once. Like I can't even imagine what that had to feel like but like you said like you're not in that mindset when you're doing it because you have to be checking off the lists of all the things to prepare you for whatever day the press that you have that day (laughs) and that requires early bed like all the early bedtimes this and this and this like you're on a schedule when you're when you're living um this what you're doing what all the stuff that you had going on wow 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 okay can we ask about what it was like to rehearse this and then slip into all the technical elements like the Ruby slippers and the gingham and like what that was like in the process for the first time. Um, 
So paper mill uses, uh, at the time it was called Barbara Matera and it was like the premier costume shop on Broadway for all the Broadway shows. And we rehearsed at 890 Broadway, which is where all the big Broadway shows rehearsed. Again, I didn't know any of this at the time because this was my first <laughs> shot at all of it. So looking back, I realized, wow, I really started like, you know, I got a chance to be with the best of the best. Um, and they made my ruby slippers by hand. Um, whatever cast of my foot, I don't remember exactly, but you know, they made those shoes for me um, and the dress and everything. And it was a big, beautiful, um, I remember the dress had, uh, it was not like a light flimsy um, Kansas girl dress. <laughs> like it was, it had uh, not like a crinoline, but it had, you know, layers to it, it had heft to it, it had weight to it. Um, and the ruby slippers, I'll tell you a funny story. So they made two pairs. Um, and thank goodness, because one night, um, so the way that I would get the slippers on my feet is the uh, Wicked Witch of the West would land. There would be a big, you know, puff of red smoke or green smoke or whatever it was. And I would run and hide behind Glinda's dress. And you see, there's a picture of Glinda's dress in that program that you have. And you'll see it's absolutely spectacular and it's massive. <laughs> so I could literally hide my whole body behind one hip, you know, one side of it. So what would happen was I would be cowering behind Glinda and there were two munchkins stationed on the floor who would unzip my boots. I had these gray uh, slip on like lace up boots. They looked like lace up boots, but they had a zipper on the side. So they would unzip my boots and they would take them off. And there was a hole cut in the stage where the ruby slippers were, were stashed. And they would, as the scene was going on with, where's my sister? Right? You know, that whole thing was going on between Glinda and the Wicked Witch. Um, they would change my shoes. So that I was just standing there and they would slowly, I would, could be focusing on the scene, but they were doing all this with my feet and I just had to step into them. And then Glinda would do the big reveal and step aside and go, and there they are. So this one night, I sense some commotion going on down there, and I'm kind of looking at the side of my eyes, what's going on? And these two little panicked faces are looking up at me going, they're not there. They're not there. And what had happened was the stage had, like, tracked down, and they had gotten stuck underneath or something. So, but of course, you know, the, the witches don't know this is going on. So Glinda goes, and there they are. And I go... <laughs> I'll go get them. And I run off stage <laughs> and they, and at this point, you know, everyone backstage is running around. Somebody's racing to go find the second pair. I'm jumping up and down in the wings and they got the second pair and I put them on my feet. And as I'm, as the, all of this is happening, the two witches are left on stage ad libbing. Oh um. <laughs> and the last thing I heard was Judy McCauley, who was Glenda going, well, I'm sorry about your sister, but she deserved to die. <laughs> and I get the new ruby slippers on. I run back out and I say, here they are. And the magic of live theater continues. So thank God they, they made two pairs of shoes. Oh. Cover those pair, that pair that was stuck. They did. They were able to get them after the show. Oh 
Oh I wish God. I could have seen the ad living between the witches happen. That it is, got, it got serious. It got involved. Yeah, And Elizabeth Franz was the Wicked Witch, and she was a fantastic actress. So I'm sure that they were holding their own out there while we were all panicking on the side stage. Oh my God. But my my biggest regret is that I don't have a pair of those. That they didn't let me keep a pair because um, oh. I that that would be have been a treasure to be able to keep. Wow. Do you know what happened to them afterwards? Were they rented out? Yeah. So our production um, became the production that toured. It opened at Madison Square Garden um, and it became like, uh, I don't know what you call it, an arena show. I mean, not an arena like like MetLife Arena, but bigger bigger scale than Paper Mill, right? Um, and they did rent out the costumes and everything the beautifully designed costumes and everything by Greg Barnes who's just a genius and the most amazing costume designer and he did Aladdin he did he did everything um but yeah so I guess I guess somebody wore them (laughs) I guess they're somewhere but I wish they were with me Uh, (laughs) you broke them in Kelly okay (laughs) you made someone's ride a little bit more comfortable Mm. Wow. They were stiff too. And they designed them. They had like a big, they had like a buckle in the front, if I remember. It was almost mm. like, um, and, and they were just jewel encrusted. They were not, not like glitter. Yeah. These were. I remember that. Yeah. They oh. were. I have out the souvenir program that we were referencing before, which I still have. I was telling Kelly earlier that it survived. Mm-hmm a whole lifetime of being in my downstairs bathroom magazine bin. Um, so it's still here with us today. Thank goodness. And I'm looking at the shoes there. Yeah. The buckle, it's like a flap yeah. that is coming up. That mm. is glittery too, which is really cool. Let me see if I can get in here to show our gals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, those are so cute. I love that there's a little silver in it. I wonder if that was an intentional nod to the book. To the book. Yeah. That is really cool because they're very unique. They're definitely inspired by the MGM glitter, but they're their own things. Yep. He definitely put his own twist on them for sure. I also really love your turtleneck that you have on. <laughs> turtleneck Dorothy. Let's go. That was <laughs> I see what I mean about the dress too. The dress was long. Yes. Like it was hefty. It was not like a little. Yeah. I mean, it also had to hide the harness when I had the harness on for flying. Mm-hmm. So there was like a, a mm-hmm. I guess a Velcro opening all the way down the back where they could, cause the, the harness gets hooked up to the back of you. Um, you have to, in, it's not the most comfortable thing in the world. Um, <laughs> but so you're basically getting picked up or at least then, I mean, I think flying has come a long way, but then you're kind of getting picked up by the middle of your back, like a, a, a yeah, that's where the connection is made. And so when you fly, they tell you to arch, you know what I mean? So otherwise you look, you're, you look like, like a, a limp rag doll. Hanging down. <laughs> and I, um, I did, I did do a few other productions of the wizard of Oz. I did one at the Walnut street theater in Philly, yeah. I did one at Kansas city starlight. Um, and that same production also went to the Fox theater in Atlanta. Um, and my, my most vivid memory from the Kansas City Starlight one is it was July in Kansas City. Oh, wow. It was so hot. 
can't even tell you that's an outdoor theater. Um, so I couldn't wait for them to hook me up to that harness so that I could fly back and forth. It was the only time I got any air. <laughs> couldn't wait for the breeze. Whew. Wow. Um, yeah, I was like, you're prepared for fall in, yeah. that, in these photos. This is an autumn Dorothy look. I would have died even more in July had I been wearing that one then. I remember our poor lion. I mean, you know, the poor man's wearing fur. And yeah. They Gosh. made him an ice vest. Mm-hmm. And he put on yeah. a vest with ice packs and then his costume. And before we even went on for our first scene, all the ice had melted. <laughs> the poor thing. Oh, no. Oh, I, no. I don't know how he did it. I do not envy actors who play the lion. It's a fun part, but the costume seems Oof. cumbersome. Brutal. Yep, his whole yeah. face would be melted off. You know, it was it was a lot. <laughs> that one was a lot. Oh. It, it, at this time, because this was early 90s, kind of off of the 89th, uh, 1989, which was the 50th anniversary of the film. So it's like riding, Oz was in a time of riding this wild high. Do you remember like what the temperature was like for the Oz world at that time with the MGM movie and when you were doing it? And these productions that you did after, was it with the same people or, or a different production? Um, all different productions. Um, oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, different directors the other two times. Um and, and very different experiences because, and it's, it's, it's hard to start a paper mill and go anywhere else. Sure. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, everything they do is first class. I, and, and still to this day, um, we just did some concerts there last summer and this summer they opened up something called the Brookside Cabaret. Um, it was, it was a, a brilliant way to keep the music going during COVID um, because it was safe. It was outdoors. It was right next to the brook in between the carriage house restaurant and the theater. And of all the concerts I've done in the last year or so is by far the best. It's just the most beautiful setting. The food is good. Like I said, everything you do is good. Is first class. Mm. Um, so after, yeah. So after paper mill, um, Walnut street was tricky because it was, a little bit smaller of a theater from what I recall than Paper Mill, but yeah. we definitely did not have the budget. Um, in fact, I uh, one of my one of my most vivid memories from that is Tech Week or was just hell. Mm. <laughs> yeah, more like Hell Week because so many of the technical elements were not working, and um, they tried to create a tornado with a huge fan. But the fan made so much noise where hear the actors. So then we got to the point where to sort of give the illusion that there was a lot of wind going on, there'd be someone standing stage left who would basically bowl a tumbleweed across the stage <laughs> to try to make it seem like things were flying. And inevitably the tumbleweed would land like center stage and just sit there. And I'd be flying on, Annie M, Annie M, and play soccer with the tumbleweed to try to get it out of the way. And, and it was, I remember the director yelling one day, this has got to work. Other people have done this show. <laughs> we had like the, uh, when the witch is supposed to, her face is supposed to come back in the crystal ball. Sure. He's looking into the crystal ball and then the wicked witch's face comes up and it was on a, a VHS tape. Basically it was in a VCR. 
And yes. remember on VCRs when you would press play and then all that would come up on the screen, play, stop, yep. triangles. So all of that kept coming up on this thing. <laughs> like, oh. So that was, that was um, Walnut Street. And then um, Starlight, like I said, the, the, the hardest thing about that was just dealing with the heat and the outdoors. And it was a huge 7,000 seat outdoor amphitheater. It was massive. Um, But um, yeah, but yeah, they were all, they were all different productions, but I did, um, I did have another epiphany during that one. I remember standing in the shower after production there and saying, I think it's time to hang up the ruby slippers. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah. And, uh, and, Funny enough, I went home and I sort of like made a commitment that I wasn't going to just, I didn't want to do the umpteenth production of Wizard of Oz on the road anymore. I'd rather stay in town and get to work on new musicals or, you know, and, and I got a dog and I did not get a dog that was an easily transportable dog. I did not get a little Toto dog. I got a Rottweiler. And, you know, so it was kind of like, it was like kind of like my own way of saying, okay, I'm staying in town. I'm, I'm, me and my hundred pound dog. We were both a hundred pounds at the time. <laughs> and, and funny enough, I got cast in Children of Eden that summer, and that that was another sort of um, what I call like a defining moment in my life and career was was Children of Eden, and I named my dog Fiona, which was my character. Oh, that. oh my gosh! Oh my okay, wow. so Rottweiler and suddenly Seymour are changing your lives. Yeah. <laughs> Then the big life. <laughs> You're a real life Dorothy on your own Toto. You're like, we're doing this together. Wow. Yep. And sometimes I, I felt like the actual Toto was a Rottweiler because my back was like. <laughs> sometimes those those sometimes those Karen Terriers were a little bigger than they were supposed to be. Oh my god! You gotta carry you gotta carry them a lot through that through yeah. that show. Wow. Wow. Kelly, thanks for for sharing all about your Oz experiences. I'm also so inspired by your cabaret and concert experience after Oz. Um, Just reading a few things. Town Hall, Lori Beachman, 54 Below. Um, You were a part of It Helps to Sing About It, and you won the 2018 Bistro Award for Outstanding Review. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your cabaret experience? Um, you had your your own show, No Place Like Home, at Fifty Four Below, and I also saw uh, in August you're performing Tiny Giants, Petite Powerhouses from Garland to Gaga at the Mansion. Springs, like I, that's I'm I can't wait. That's so inspiring. Um, again. It's magical. Magic. <laughs> Thank you, could guys. You, yeah. So, um. So basically, after Children of Eden, um, I met a, a girl that I went to high school with, brought this guy to see the show. We met afterwards. And make a long story short, um, we got married. <laughs> and so, um, and he was not in the business. And we uh, moved to New Jersey. And I basically went into retirement. I had two children. And um, I just had a, a different life for a while and mm-hmm. I'm, and I made my family my first priority and, and I don't regret that for one moment. Um, but obviously I, I missed singing very much and, um, but I, I didn't sing for about 10 years. And then, um, a guy that I did a show with called Dear Edwina written by Marcy and Zena. If you guys yes, love Dear Edwina, it's darling. Isn't it the greatest show? So, so there's darling. a character in it, the, the character of Kelly, it's me. Um, 
because I did all the original readings and the character of Scott is my friend, Scott Coulter, who um, started his own production company, Spot on Entertainment. And he is, he's like the modern day Ziegfeld now. He, he's a producer, a director, a performer. Um, and I ran into him and he was doing a concert at town hall called Broadway originals where they bring back somebody who originated a role on Broadway. And it's a, it's a really awesome concert to experience because you've got somebody who was just on Broadway two years ago. And then you had like Tova Felcha doing it. You've got people who were on Broadway 30 years ago, 10 years ago, two years ago. Um, so he said, will you come do the Joseph songs? And I said, sure. And, hadn't sung in 10 years but I was like I think I can still carry a tune um so quite a score to come back to too (laughs) yeah Yeah. that Jacob Jacob octave jump like that's like here we go (laughs) yeah I think I've got a permanent notch in my chords where Jacob and Sons is I've got ease ingrained in my vocal cords Um, (laughs) a home for ease the voice of Kelly Mm that's your <laughs> so I went to uh, the rehearsal for that, um, met a great group of musicians. The music director, his name was John Fisher. We like hit it off immediately. And um, I was talking to him backstage and I said, you know, I've always wanted to do my own cabaret show, but I never really knew how to go about doing it. And he said, and he plays for Emily Skinner and, and all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, let's, let's do one. Come on. So I just started. And shortly after that, um, Hurricane Sandy hit and okay. I was on the board of the theater out here in New Jersey. The John, Har- it was the old John Harms theater, the Bergen pack in Englewood. Um, okay. and I put together, um, uh, like a hurricane relief benefit and asked John and the other musicians to come and play for that. And, um, so we stayed in touch and one of my dear friends for 25 years is Julia Murney. Um, who love her in Elphaba. She was Queenie and wild party. Everybody knows and loves Julia. She's Broadway royalty. Um, so she got approached to do a show at the ocean city um, in ocean city, New Jersey. They do a show every year called Broadway on the boardwalk. Yes. You couldn't do it. And she said, you know, my friend Kelly just started performing again. She was an Aaron Joseph, blah, blah, blah. And so they had me come and I had to do, they asked me to do six songs and tell some stories. Um, and so John and I put that together and we realized we were halfway to a cabaret show at that point. So we continued working on it and Scott was our director and I called it no place like home. And um, it was very much, and I, I sang over the rainbow and I closed the show with a quote from the, from, from Wizard of Oz. And it was very much a, a personal journey story of my journey from like, you know, stage to motherhood and back again. And that kind of kicked it all off. Um, From there, yeah, I just started doing tons of concerts at 54 Below, and Scott's production company took off, and we started doing symphony concerts. Um, In fact, so we've got Blockbuster Broadway, Music of the Nights, K-N-I-G-H-T, those kind of nights, not (laughs) evenings. Sir Angela Weber, Sir Paul McCartney, and um, Sir Elton John, the music of those three. It's a fantastic symphony show. Um, But my personal favorite is called The Wonderful Music of Oz. And we do songs from Wizard of Oz, from The Wiz, from Wicked, anything, um, even things that have... um, Oz as their inspiration or rainbow, like, um, rainbow connection. Um, 
just, it's a fantastic, fantastic show. And to hear that music played with a full symphony orchestra is just, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. I, that's what I've missed most in this last year and a half of not being able to travel and perform. Those concerts are, there's nothing like it. So hopefully we're getting back to that. I've got some on my calendar now for the fall. Um, but yeah, so I, I, the one thing I did do during quarantine was come up with an idea for another show after no place like home. I did a, um, one called the wizard and I, and it was all Steven Schwartz music. Um, then I did one called feels like home, which was a little more pop oriented. And, um, this one, uh, John and I, uh, so just back up briefly and say that, um, my husband and I did end up separating um, about five years ago and um, we're on very good terms. He bought a house right around the corner and my kids are doing great. It's a, it's a very amicable. Um, I always say in the less than perfect set of circumstances, we're having the best possible version of a divorce you can have. Everybody's good and, and the kids are doing great and that's all that really matters. So, um, but that music director that I told you that I met during um, the Broadway originals, um, who became my music director for all of my cabaret um, shows. We, our relationship sort of went from being just friends to being more than friends. Once our, once our personal circumstances changed at home, we sort of dis- discovered that we liked each other more than just on stage. <laughs> and so he is now my partner, both on stage and off my other half, I should say both on stage and off the new journey that I'm on my, my new yellow brick road, um, involves, um, a new person in my life who went from being my music director to being my partner, my, my other half. And it's really amazing to get to make music together and then, you know, create a new show together and, and, and share our lives together too. It's wonderful. So one thing we did during quarantine was we came up, uh, actually I had this idea, probably the last symphony show that I traveled to do before quarantine hit. And I was sitting in a hotel room and I said, you know, so many of the biggest female voices throughout history have come from the smallest women. And I started Googling how tall is you know, Judy Garland, 4'11". How tall is Edith Piaf? She was like 4'8". Um, and I came up with this fantastic list of, as I call them, petite powerhouses. Um, and we put together a show around it. And it's everyone from Dolly Parton, Stevie Nicks, um, Pat Benatar. Uh, then you've got a whole theater section, Bette Midler. Um, Patty Lapone, Kristen Chenoweth, uh, Elaine Page. So my cutoff is 5'2". Everybody is 5'2 or under. And this show, <laughs> we premiered it in just this past May at the Mayo Performing Arts Center in Morristown with full band um, of backup singers. And now we're doing, uh, John and I have done just a two-person version of it, just the, just he and I. We did that at Paper Mill for the Brookside Cabaret. Um and then we we are now doing a four person version with um, uh, Sean Harkness on guitar, John Fisher on piano, myself on lead vocals, and Stevie and Cremona on backing vocals. And we're doing that up in Saratoga Springs. And we did it out in Long Island at the Engelman Theater a couple weeks ago. And and it's a great combo. So we get the we get the guitar in there for like the the more pop stuff, and um, Stevie and John 
uh, both do backups and it's a fantastic show. I'm really, I'm really proud of it. I'm really excited about it. I love the concept. People are really, really responding to it. And, um, yeah, well, that's, that's sort of where, yeah, that's sort of where it's, it started for me with theater. Then it was family and kids and retirement for a while and now it's uh the new yellow brick road is definitely the concert work and and that's great because my kids so my my son is 17 my daughter's 11 um but when i started doing this it was probably seven years ago i guess um was that broadway the broadway originals concert so you know my daughter was like four you know i certainly was and they didn't grow up with a mom who was doing eight shows a week so i wasn't gonna suddenly not be around to put my kid to bed at night and so concert work has been perfect because it enables me to still to do what I love, um, but still be a mom too. And still have, you know, it just, it's all about balancing the priorities. And um, I'm really happy to have music back in my life, but really happy that I'm still here for my kids too. Oh, Kelly. I don't even know where to begin with everything you just shared. Cause it's like, okay, you said Julia Murney's your best friend. I was like, my mind is so open. It's like both of you are like huge influences in like what I used to listen to. And I was thinking too about like when I was younger, Joseph was on my cassette tape all the time. So, I mean, the only reason I'm able to maybe belt is maybe because of you, because I was screaming Potiphar <laughs> through the door with you in the mask. I'm gonna use that. Like you know, like a little kid just screaming. But (laughs) I mean, just to hear how your your yellow brick road, the yellow is still there. Like there's still this fabric that ties it all together, which is so beautiful. But where this brick road has been going has changed and been fully embraced by you. And it's just so it's so beautiful to witness to see how music and family seem to be such core elements of each step that you take and it's so inspiring as someone who wants to be a mom and still do this you know um like what is i think it looks different for every single mother and performer uh and it is so inspiring to witness someone who has already done it and done it with such um i I think there's a fear sometimes of like oh i'm gonna miss things or all that can come up but when you see someone do it in a way that is so their own way of doing it and with such enjoyment. That's so inspiring to see. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing these stories. They're so amazing. I do have to ask a really nerdy question because I was like, I can't let you go without asking this question. Okay. Okay. Um, Well, Eddie Bracken, I mean, working with him as the wizard at Paper Mill, was was he the wizard anywhere else with you or just at Paper Mill? Just at Paper Mill. Okay. Eddie Bracken, for y'all who needs a quick reference, he is in Home Alone 2. He is Duncan's toy chest, but now you know. But more beyond that was that he worked with probably every actor from the MGM film. Um, Because, yeah, his career was the musicals of the MGM era. He was a part of that, like, Arthur Freed unit. He was in those musicals with Judy, with Mickey Rooney. He probably worked with, too, with, like, Billy Burke. He crossed paths with all the people did he ever share any stories with you about what that world was like no was he a distant no. man that was just like oh wow this what was yeah what was that like he was the sweetest kindest just 
gentle and always a smile on his face and just jolly. And I remember sometimes, I mean, he was born to play that role. He was absolutely perfect for that part, especially when he was Professor Marvel. You know, that scene where he's Professor Marvel and he's looking in her basket at the photos to see her family and he's, he's making things up. He was, he was, um, I remember sometimes he would start to stray from the script a little bit and, and I'd, I'd be looking deep into his eyes to see where he was going to try to get us back on track to see where things were. But he was, he was wonderful. And again, like I was so young and I was so new, like I, I, talk about being in the presence of like, you know, entertainment royalty. You know, he was, like you said, he worked with everyone and that was an incredible, incredible opportunity that, again, perspective, they look back on it and say, wow, <laughs> I really got to work with him. Wow. Oh, yeah. So, he was the treasure. I mean, the fact that our generation, Em and I's generation, grew up with him in Home Alone 2, just being this. What's, I feel like he is the person you want to run into when you are lost. Yeah, <laughs> he embodies that, which it's so <laughs> he played the wizard because it's exactly what he is for Dorothy. She's freaking lost, and he doesn't really offer much, <laughs> but he offers yeah. warmth that yeah. is necessary. Yeah, and he was a very warm guy. and gentle and kind, and Ugh. just yeah, he was great. I think I've heard, we've talked about Rob McClure so many times um, on the podcast. He's come up a bunch because of just different connections. Paper Mill being another thing that has come up a lot too on our podcast. But I think Rob McClure talks about Eddie Bracken changing his life because he did a show with Eddie Bracken when he was a kid, I guess, mm. at Paper Mill and just how he taught him how to be kind um, mm. as like, he would become a leading man, like just remembering Eddie Bracken's way of just being so kind to everybody. Mm. Um, and the cast, just, oh, that's so, those wow. stories are so nice to hear. Yeah. 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 Well, Kelly, well, I personally just want to thank you for sharing your memories and also sharing your yellow brick road and reminding us that it's a journey as people, as women, as actors, there will be ups and downs, there'll be twists and turns, but we're both so inspired by you. And as Tara said, just to learn how the yellow has stayed the same as you've made little different stops on your road. <laughs> so we have one fun final question to ask you that we ask all of our Slipperhood members. It's my personal fave question. Okay. Um, all right. If you could design for us your dream pair of Ruby slippers, they can be Ruby. They can be silver rainbow. They can be any kind of shoe that you like. We've had many, many responses. Is, uh, is there a dream pair that you would like to see come into existence for yourself? Hmm. Well, um, funny enough, my new show, Tiny Giants, um, I will send you guys our, the graphic design for it. The design, which my friend Colleen came up with, um, I asked her to make me a um, modern ruby slipper. And the, the show, as I said before, like the, the subscript is Petite Powerhouses from Garland to Gaga. So I said, can we make a ruby slipper that encompasses both Judy Garland and Lady Gaga. So it is an extreme high heel, red high heel with little spikes sticking out of the front to give the, uh, you know, to try to, um, to try to incorporate the eras, the different eras that are represented in this new show. 
And I have a pair. So the actual shoes that I've been wearing for the show are not those because those were a creation, but I have a pair of super high red shoes of platform. And um, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of wearing my own modern Ruby slipper right now for my new show. Um, and they're, they're like a red suede and they've got like a little bow in the front. Um, and I love them. <laughs> I love them. And because they're a platform, they're actually pretty comfortable as far as show shoes go. But I would say that if, if I had, if I could design something else from scratch, other than the one that I designed for that, or that Colleen and I kind of put together for that, graphic design. Um, I love silver. I'm totally a silver person. You guys can see me. You two can see me though. The rest of you at home can't, but I am literally wearing silver jewelry from head to toe at all. Mm -hmm. times. Um, and I love silver shoes and I have a silver bag. And so I would make silver platform, high heel, blingy. Shoot. That would be my, that would be my, uh, we can't call it a ruby slipper. That would be my silver slipper as an original novel. All the bling. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that you have a classic element captured in both and this rocker, fearless, defying energy. And I love, I we need to come see Tiny Giant. Yes. yes. To come see it. This sounds phenomenal. Um just so exciting. So I'm just so excited to hear everything that you're up to, Kelly. And I can't believe I'm talking to you after only seeing you when I was five years old. So. I'm, so, I'm so glad you told me all those stories too. That was awesome. Oh, and so I do, we did just book two dates at the Green Room 42 in New York for October 8th and Friday, October 8th and Sunday, October 10th, both at 7 p.m. at the Green Room. We'll be doing Tiny Giants. So please <gasps> join us. Yeah. Oh my God. Kelly, as you were just talking, we will be there, A number one. I remember in your dressing room, you're the first part person to also teach me what steaming was because you had a steamer or something. Yes, like big steamer. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm being like, what is that? And I think my parents were like, she needs it for her voice. <laughs> oh. I just was like, oh, cool. And then now I know the magic of steaming now, but crazy that memory just came flying back too wow <laughs> well thank you guys so much for having me this was a blast and um i can't wait to hear it all and i look forward to seeing you seeing you in person yeah uh, thank you for joining us this was i know just observing tara like she has been so excited to talk to you as of course i but it's been so beautiful to witness this full circle moment as well so thank you for for joining us and we can't wait for for October. Yes. I can't wait to see you guys there. So, and I'm on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. I'll always post shows there. So just follow me. I'll follow you guys back. And that's how we can, the easiest way to stay in touch. On Facebook, I'm Kelly Rabke, Kelly with an I, R-A-B-K-E. And on Instagram, I think I'm Kelly Rabs. Um, a friend of mine years ago named me Rabs. That's been, <laughs> so, um, yeah, Kelly Rabs on Instagram. And um, yeah. Follow me and hopefully you guys can all come see a show one of these days. Will do. All right. Thank you so much. Thank amazing. you. Take care. Have a good one. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Down the Yellow Brick Pod. If you are feeling frisky with your fingertips, scroll on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a glowing rate and review. 
Each person who leaves us a review will be entered to win our end-of-the-season Oz giveaways, including a gift basket of musical adaptation goods, which, trust me, you aren't going to want to miss. All previous reviews will also be considered in our entries. We see you. Until next time, catch us at Down the Yellow Brick Pod in our Technicolor scrapbook on IG and partying on our Patreon. Gratitude to our patrons of present and future for making more magic possible. Let's escape to Oz soon, okay? TTYL!